to you, Macintosh and Maude Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today it's still 1967 and we are watching The Dirty Dozen. During World War II, a rebellious U.S. Army major is assigned a dozen convicted murderers to train and lead them into a mass assassination mission of German officers. Okay. It's wartime. Correct. So, how's the war movie feeling? Long. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we haven't even started down real war movies. Wow, okay. This is not long compared to some stuff. Two and a half hours. This is a this is a pretty good chunk of war it's not, movie. It's not bad. I mean, we talked about this kind of watching the movie. Do you think that because We've seen these tropes played out in a lot of different war movies and not some non-war movies mm-hmm. that this movie's lost that sheen and novelty. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it just, it has, it's, I've, I've seen the, let's get a ragtag group of people and do a thing we shouldn't do. See, and that's, that's, I think the, the hard part about this movie is that, you know, it's one thing to get a ragtag group of people. These are hardened criminals. Yeah. Some of the trivia explains this a little bit, but I think when original audiences saw this, they had, even in what they saw on screen, more context for how bad these guys were. No, and I I, I get that. But for me, it's, it's lost because I've seen this so many times. Yeah. Yeah, like just take Ocean's Eleven. They're all criminals. And they're like, we're all friends, though. We're going to get together and we're going to get, we need one more. We need one more. And let's go do this thing. And it's not the same intent, but it's the same concept. You know, there's something, if you remade this movie today, mm-hmm. and Quentin Tarantino kind of did with Inglorious Bastards, but. Which I loved. If you were to do a straight remake of The Dirty Dozen, uh-huh. one of the things you would have to do is darken the tone a lot more throughout the movie. This movie is like practically a slapstick comedy until the last 45 minutes. It is, and it's just like, we're going to go kill some Nazis, because Nazis are bad. Let's go kill Nazis. Like, that's the whole thing. And the problem is, is that in 1967, it's so jarring because a group of rapists and murderers are getting to be funny mm-hmm. and becoming a military. And that is horrifying <laughs> to an audience. But it's like, who else is going to do this job? Who else are you going to get? Nobody else is going to go on a suicide mission. Like, this is a suicide mission. If you somehow get out, you will be free. Like, that's the only reason to do this. Project Amnesty. You will select 12 general prisoners convicted and sentenced to death or to long terms of imprisonment for murder, rape, robbery, and or other crimes of violence and so forth. Train and qualify these prisoners in as much of the business of behind-the-lines operations as they can absorb in a brief but unspecified time. You will then deliver them secretly into the European mainland and just prior to the invasion... Attack and destroy the target specified. Overleaf. That's all. And I get like these are guys who have nothing to lose. Yeah, that's the whole point. Which again, I love it. I'm cool. I'm like I'm down for this premise. I've enjoyed this premise. Oh yeah. It's just the film is dated for me. I don't have any nostalgia feelings for it. So like I get it, Ron. You love this movie, but I don't care. <laughs> I would rather watch The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Because Parks and Rec trivia, when Leslie finds out Ron Swanson's birthday, she throws him a Ron Swanson party, wherein he gets a steak from Mulligan's, and she has rented Bridge on the River Kwai, and the Dirty Dozen, and the security guard is standing to make sure nobody bothers him. 
All right. The budget for this movie was $5.4 million. That's roughly equivalent to $41.5 million in today's money. Cool. So we're talking about a decent sized war movie here. Yeah, all the money went to explosions. Oh my gosh. Which is fair. They're good explosions. They are good explosions. Like the plan is well executed. Whoa. I mean, it's it nothing works, but the plan is enjoyable to watch on screen. Oh yeah. 13. Franco goes out without being seen. 14. Zero R. And Manny touches the cable. Franco has the phone. 15. Franco goes in where the others have been. 16. We all come out like this. I don't read. And kill every officer in sight. Odds are theirs. Well, let's start <laughs> off with Paris, huh? All right, let's take it again from the top without all the ad libs. So that's where I'm like, it's executed well. Everything feels real and dirty Mm, in the best way. Not really real. Well, but I mean, you feel like these are grunts who are dirty, who are out in the middle of a field in Europe trying to learn how to finally be soldiers for once in their lives. I'm sorry, were they clean? Mm -hmm. Never. (laughs) You just keep saying dirty. They were dirty. Literally. It earned a gross of $45.3 million, Woo-hoo. roughly around $350 million in today's money. This was one of the most profitable films of 1967. No. So it resonated. Yeah, it's a war movie. And I think some of this trivia will explain that. Okay. For writing, the novel was written by E.M. Nathanson. He also wrote the book The Latecomers and A Dirty Distant War, a sequel to that book. Okay. And this movie does have sequels to it, but I don't think they have anything to do with this original premise. I'm not going to watch them. No, we don't need to. It's literally just get another group of guys and go do a mission. Oh, like Oceans 12 and Oceans 13? (laughs) See, my comparison still works. In the book, it's 95% training Okay. The mission is only a few pages of the book along with an official report. So it is completely about this crew. Okay. The character names and attributes were changed, but more importantly, that book is far bloodier, more racist, more violent, and psychopathic. All of the characters are way darker in the book. And rightfully so. You can't do that on screen as, at this point, I don't think. I mean, now you might be able to pull off this movie, but I understand in the novel feeling like I can go deeper and make these guys more evil. Yeah. To really get at that root. It's it's the same thing with Clockwork Orange of like, how do you find sympathy for pure evil? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's an interesting thing to write about. The biggest change in the entire story is that Franco doesn't believe he's going to get his pardon after the mission Mm -hmm. to the bitter end and tries to surrender to the Germans Mm -hmm. and is killed by Boren, the MP. Yeah. So that is the one big giant thing. It makes sense what they do with Franco, honestly. Yeah. It's a much better and in a way emotional moment of he's finally fucking free and then he's dead. And it's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. Because you finally come to respect this grimy dude. For our screenwriters, we have Nunnally Johnson. This was his final screenplay. Mm-hmm. Before this, he wrote 1934's Moulin Rouge, 1940's Grapes of Wrath, 
Tobacco Road, Roxy Hart, The Pied Piper, The Dark Mirror, The Gunfighter, Phone Call from a Stranger, How to Marry a Millionaire, Night People, Black Widow, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, The Three Faces of Eve, and The Angel Wore Red. Real upbeat dude. Got an old school dude, too. Guy who does noir movies and dirty dust bowl stories with <laughs> Grapes of Wrath. And then we have Lucas Heller. Before this, he wrote Never Back Losers, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, basically the same movie, <laughs> The Flight of the Phoenix, and then after this, The Killing of Sister George and Damnation Alley. Yeah, upbeat dude. I don't know what specific purpose the writing serves this movie. <laughs> Other than you have to have a plot. Like, that's probably the most important thing. It's more like architecture. Yeah. Like, because the dialogue, not the best. No, but it doesn't matter, per se. No, it's it's not a... This is an action film at its core. Yeah. So it's about doing stuff. And they do stuff. Though I will say, they give enough flavor to the characters where they each have their own personality. Yes, some of it blurred a little bit just because the movie was kind of long and they're all wearing the same outfit. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's really like featured like Jefferson is his own character. Vladislaw is his own character. Posey, the big kind of oaf guy, mm-hmm. the lovable, lovable, the lovable oaf. big dude who doesn't want to hurt anybody until you shove him. And then, of course, our major who is badass. He's pretty big badass. I mean, talk about big dick energy. Wait till we get into Lee Marvin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, you little bastard, either you march, or I'll beat your brains out. Understand? I saw the major attacked by the prisoner and forced to defend himself, sir. All right, have the prisoner taken back to his cell. Directing. Mm-hmm. This movie was directed by Robert Aldrich. This guy's a pretty, he's like a second run legend of the old school Hollywood show. Before this, he did Apache, Vera Cruz, Kiss Me Deadly, The Big Knife, Autumn Leaves, 10 Seconds to Hell, The Last Sunset, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and The Flight of the Phoenix. After this, the Killing of Sister George, The Grissom Gang, The Longest Yard from 1974, Twilight's Last Gleaming, and The Frisco Kid. Okay, I've seen none of those. <laughs> what did you think of the directing? It's okay. The only time where I feel, where I really like feel it is at the end. Yeah. Because you kind of have to. So, And that was really good, but other than that, it's not, it doesn't feel special. It reminds me a little bit of Cool Hand Luke. With that, yeah. we feel like in this in-between old and new Hollywood yes, styles. Yes, And that movie had a very specific thing where it was very presentational and mm-hmm. theatrical. This movie is filled with movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an action movie. But there is this element of he's willing to do a crazy-ass shot because it's going to get the effect better than doing the normal Hollywood way of doing mm. things. I think that's where you do get some different flavor to it. And that's probably the biggest touch we get from his directing on it. But he was very influential in how this movie got put together. Okay. He very explicitly intended this as an anti-war commentary. Okay. At the time, there was a large conversation about World War II in light of us being in Vietnam. Fair. And talking about, was it okay for us to go in and just like 
carpet bomb German cities with civilians? Is that an okay thing to do? It's a good question to be, ethical question to be pondering. And in light of some of the atrocities that were coming out, we hadn't gotten the full details of Mi Lai, but there were really awful things happening in Vietnam with soldiers. And I only know about what that is now because of this podcast. (laughs) And just the blanket heroism of the soldier Mm -hmm. was in question. Fair. So Aldrich really liked the story because it both had action, but it also had this core anti-hero notion that every single one of these guys is a criminal. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting. If you've ever listened to the show Behind the Bastards, which I highly recommend. Oh, so good. They did an episode about the man who hung Nazis. And in it, it's a whole crazy story. But one of the things they talked about is why soldiers got hung in World War II. Mm -hmm. When we went over there, there was a hearts and minds campaign. Mm -hmm. This isn't something I think I knew. But one of the reasons that they hung soldiers for rape, for theft, for certain like egregious crimes, Mm -hmm. normally... If you were a prisoner of war or you were being executed as a soldier during a court martial, mm-hmm. you'd be shot. Yeah. The idea was you committed such a heinous crime that you're not a soldier anymore. You don't deserve that status. So we hang you instead. You've lost any honor. Exactly. So we're going to you're you're a common criminal now. And we're the, going to we're going to execute you as such. And the biggest reason for that was the horrible horrible atrocities that the Nazis committed. Totally. The American forces said, we can't let our guys do the same thing and and not send a clear message that that's not okay. So it was, it was this interesting thing of when they see this movie, they might not realize how serious the nature of these crimes were to the military mm-hmm. and how much shit these guys were in. <laughs> Lee Marvin quoted, life is a violent situation. It's not just the men in the chalet who were Nazis. The women were part of it too. I like the idea of the final scene because it was their job to destroy the whole group and maybe in some way speed up the demise of the Third Reich. We glorify the 8th Air Force for bombing cities where they killed 100,000 people in one night. But remember, there were a lot of women and children burned up in those raids. So there's there's like a really deeper core to this movie. And I think, like we said, because of its age, it doesn't resonate the same way for us that it did at the time. No, but I can appreciate that. And yeah. And I think we were in a better position in 67 to ask those questions about World War II. I feel like now we fought so many. We've been at war for the last 20 years. And we fought wars that don't feel like they had any reason for happening. So at least World War II felt like it was justified. Yeah. You know, it's harder to to kind of pose those questions about this setting. Mm -hmm. Lee Marvin related an interesting story about Aldrich. Aldrich stated that the cast needed to get a period-correct haircut in order to be soldiers for the film. Marvin got his crew cut. He was in the military back in the day. He knew what to do. No big deal. But everybody else got trims to their normal styles. Mm -hmm. So after twice saying that their haircuts were not acceptable and making them go back and do it again, Aldrich stated, either come in with your haircut correctly or call your lawyers. Nice. Bronson in particular was one of the holdouts. You know, when you're an actor, your appearance does not belong to you. Yeah, I know. With some certain caveats and, of course, safety and some comfort elements, your your appearance does not belong to you. I kind of love, though, that the cast was already pushing back at the authority. <laughs> like, it makes sense for, like, the one guy to just be like, 
fuck this shit. I'm not doing that. Like, I'm in character. No, sorry. I have to be a dick about this. No. Well, and like, the thing is, Bronson's haircut is still pretty close to his normal shaggy. Yeah. Like. No, which, which again makes total sense. <laughs> Aldrich used the money from this film's success to actually create his own studio. Oh, cool. But unfortunately, his first two productions failed, and then he got forced into doing, like, the longest yard to try to keep things afloat. So... Make things work. Didn't quite work out for him the way he had hoped, but that's pretty cool. Like, he made enough money off the back of this to really make a go for it. And he hated working in England. The British crews were way too slow for the pace he liked to work at. Interesting. He wanted to move this movie along. Hey, I can't blame you for that. All right, our cast. Before we get into the full cast, the following cast members served in World War II. Okay. Lee Marvin in the Marines, Mm -hmm. Telly Savalas in the Army, Charles Bronson in the Army, Ernest Borgnine in the Navy, Clint Walker as a Merchant Marine, Robert Ryan in the Marines, and George Kennedy in the Army. Thank you for your service. So we had a lot of veterans. That's cool, though. Stitting up in this movie. I like that. Like, it's good to have those guys on a movie like this. Yeah. Especially a movie that's pretty much bucking your war movie trends. Yeah, a little bit. Like, you're fighting a lot of the conventions of war movies. Mm -hmm. Having some authentic military guys on set helps you dig a little deeper, which I think this movie does. It feels a little more grounded than some of the other World War II movies of the time. First up, Lee Marvin as Major Reisman. Before this, he was in The Cane Mutiny, Bad Day at Black Rock, M Squad on television, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, The Killers, Cat Baloo, Ship of Fools, and The Professionals. After this, he was in Point Blank, Hell in the Pacific, Paint Your Wagon. Paint Your Wagon? Oh my god, we have to watch that at some point. The Iceman Cometh, The Klansman, Shout at the Devil, The Big Red One, Death Hunt, and The Delta Force. The tilt. Hell yeah, he was up with Chuck fucking Norris. Interesting. What'd you think of Lee Marvin? He's good. I mean, like, if he's not good, the movie's gonna fall apart. He is both rigid and disciplined, and yet also is smirking the whole time. Yeah, because, like, there's a part of this is like, I know I'm I'm being ridiculous and I'm crazy, but proud of him. Also, fuck the generals. They oh, don't yeah. know how to fight this war. No, they've been they haven't been in the combat for very long, like in a while. They're they're in the offices, war planning. And weirdly, I think he actually respects generals. It's those mid-tier officers. Oh yeah. He just loathes. The the yes men for the generals. It's just like the pure disdain he has for them. Yes. It's just beautiful. But as far as I'm concerned, you're a disorganized, undisciplined clown. And I'm going to make it my business to run you right out of this army. I owe you an apology. I always thought that you were a cold, unimaginative, tight-lipped officer. But you're really quite emotional, aren't you? Marvin, who served during World War II, called the movie crap and just a dummy moneymaker. Mm-hmm. He stated it had nothing to do with war and said his later roles like the Big Red One were closer to his actual experiences in combat. He noted that many of the actors were too old to actually be soldiers, which is true. Most World War II vets were like 19 to 25 when they went to war. Jeez. Yeah, they were kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, Most people who join the military are kids. 
So I, I do I do understand that. It's like these guys are a little old to convincingly be soldiers in, in Europe. But he did provide technical assistance with uniforms and weapons on set. That's cool. At one point, he complained about Reisman's wrestling of the bayonet from Posey to be phony. But Aldrich simply retorted that the plot was so outlandish that the audience would be so wowed by the action that lapses would outweigh the plot holes. (laughs) That's pretty good. He's like, look, my dude, we've got so much shit happening in this movie. No one's gonna care. Nope. There was a scene that required Lee Marvin to drive an armored truck with Bronson in the shotgun seat. But Marvin was a no-show for the scene that day. They tracked him down to a pub in Belgravia. He was hauled to the studio and coffee was poured down his throat because he was that drunk. Oh my. And when he fell out of the car after arriving on set, Charles Bronson stated, I'm going to fucking kill you, Lee. It's fair. Lee Marvin was a raging alcoholic. (laughs) Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it doesn't really surprise me, but I, I didn't know that. So it's like, oh, new information. Marvin was so drunk at a cocktail function happening in London while the movie was being filmed that he got drunk and propositioned an old lady in the most vulgar manner possible. The speech was so slurred, she actually had to ask him to repeat it, and he obliged. This woman was the aunt of Sean Connery, (laughs) and Connery was ready to throw fists. That makes sense. I don't know what it was. But I want to know so bad. I want, yeah, I, that was my first question. I was like, I want to know what he said. The producer of The Dirty Dozen, Kenneth Hyman, had to intervene and say, don't hit him in the face, Sean. He's got close-ups tomorrow. Well, I can appreciate that. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure they're filming in and around London and Europe, and this has to be around the same time I they're doing uh, You Only Live Twice. Yep. So. Oh, I'm going to have that song on my head now. Holy shit. Ernest Borgnine stated that Lee Marvin was immensely disrespectful and, frankly, racist towards Jim Brown behind Jim Brown's back. Mm. Yeah, I know. Gross. Borgnine then stated that Marvin was lucky Brown never heard him say it. And that's true, because Jim Brown would have fucking taken his ass out. Jim Brown did not suffer fools. I wouldn't either. Lee Marvin wound up turning down the movie Where Eagles Dare because he hated the process of making this movie. But he did have high praise for the cast. He said that even when they ad-libbed a scene, invariably it was in character, so all it could do was to help the film. Well, that's good. He was a nightmare to work with. Hmm. But he had respect for the guys. Who could have been better? John Wayne. No. Like, I I understand the impulse. He could have been the uh, Ernest Borgnine. He refused over the original script in which Reisman has an affair with a married woman whose husband was fighting overseas. Mm. Other sources stated he didn't want to be away while his wife was giving birth to a new baby. Um, Respectable. Uh, That one is respectable. Ernest Borgnine as General Borden. Before this, he was in From Here to Eternity, Johnny Guitar, Vera Cruz, Bad Day at Blackrock, Marty McHale's Navy in 1964, and the TV series of The Flight of the Vicks. After this, he was in Ice Station Zebra, The Wild Bunch, 1971's Willard, The Poseidon Adventure, 1976's Jesus of Nazareth, The Greatest, Escape from New York, Airwolf, Lots of Television, Gattaca, Small Soldiers, Basketball, Mermaid Man on Spongebob, and Red. He's Mermaid Man on Spongebob? Apparently. I'm like disappointed that I didn't know that. Ernest Borgnine did so many things. (laughs) No, I, I know that. He's one of those faces that you're like, that dude. What'd you think of Ernest Borgnine? I liked him. 
Like, I hate his character, but he's really good in it. Uh, I kind of like his character. Yeah, I w- he was annoying to me. Which really? Probably. I liked him because he's annoying at first. And then once he realizes what's going on, he's like, okay, I'll give these guys a shot. What the hell? Yeah. I'll ruffle my underlings. I just didn't like it. very. I, I, I just don't like his character very much, but I, he's very good in the role. I wish he had been smirking from the beginning and not such a hard ass in the first scene. Yeah. Because if he'd been comic relief through the whole movie, it would have been far more entertaining. Yes. Apparently, he ad-libbed the choking on his drink after hearing about the dozen with the women, <laughs> which is a good spit take. That, that is a good spit take. So good on you there. Charles Bronson as Joseph Wadislaw. Before this, he was in Apache, Veracruz, Machine Gun Kelly, The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, Four for Texas, The Sandpiper, Battle of the Bulge, and This Property is Condemned. After this, Guns of San Sebastian, Once Upon a Time in the West, Cold Sweat, The Mechanic, Death Wish, and all of its sequels. Hmm. There's like six of them. Rain on Entebbe, Death Hunt, Ten to Midnight, and 1991's Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus. Oh. What'd you think about Charles Bronson? He's very good. Charles Bronson's so good in so many things. And it's like he only got war action movies to do. It would have been so cool to see him in like some just sort of kitchen sink drama. Yeah, I could could see that. It just, that's not the path he went down, but Mm -hmm. I'm just like that. I'm missing that because, like, he's so steely-eyed and interesting. That wouldn't have been a bad place for him. Wadislaw says in the film that his father is a coal miner from Silesia, and this was true to Bronson's actual experience. His father was a coal miner in Lithuania. Okay. In fact, Charles Bronson's real name is, like, very Eastern European. So okay. they changed it to a to a film name, but it's like, oh yeah, he is very much from that area of the world. Marvin told another story about the making of this movie. Aldrich pulled a joke on Charles Bronson, who was 5'9". He wore low boxing shoes during rehearsal so that he would look taller compared to the rest of the guys. Mm-hmm. During the inspection scene, Aldrich put him between Clint Walker as Posey at 6'6", Mm-hmm. And Donald Sutherland, who was 6'4". Oh, gosh. Aldrich apparently laughed for about 10 minutes straight at how pissed off Charles Bronson was. Yeah, I would laugh about that, too. <laughs> uh, like, that's just funny. Like, being 5'10", there's nothing wrong with that. But, like, compa- like when you're walking around with someone who's 6'6 six, six, and 6'4", you're short. You are next to Mr. Beefcake. Yeah, pretty much. And the lankiest human in recorded history. <laughs> pretty much. At that, at that time. They, they didn't know about Stephen Merchant yet. That's true. And actually, Charles Bronson walked off set in the middle of filming this movie because he did not like how violent it was. Interesting. He was not excited about it. So, hmm. However, I could also see that mostly Marvin's ridiculous antics were probably pissing him off more than anything. <laughs> Probably wasn't the best. Jim Brown as Robert Jefferson. Now, you don't know who Jim Brown is. I really don't. But if anybody's a fan of football, Jim Brown might be the greatest NFL running back of all time. Okay. Jim Brown was a powerhouse runner and did not suffer fools and was probably one of the first athletes to be very outspoken about racial issues. Good for him. Like he was and like super strong and confrontational about it. So- 
kind of a problematic guy if you look into some of his backstory, but still a very interesting dude. This movie was a big part of his transition out of the NFL mm-hmm. and moving into activism along with filmmaking. Cool. So after this movie, because this is his first film appearance, he did Ice Station Zebra, Slaughter, Three the Hard Way, The Running Man, I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka, Mars Attack, Small Soldiers, Any Given Sunday, She Hate Me, and most recently, Draft Day. Draft Day? That was the Kevin Costner film where he's an NFL executive and it's the NFL Draft. It came out a little while ago. What do you think of Jim Brown as Jefferson? I mean, he's very stiff, huh. but like he's he's very stiff, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for the character, but there's just not a lot happening there. And, you know, this is one of his, his first things, so it's not surprising. But yeah, it, he's a little stiff for me. See, for me, he's one of the more compelling people to watch. Like his character, I don't know why, but his character was the one that grabbed me throughout the movie. Hmm. Um, Jefferson's just got this this demeanor. And I love that they they wrote this character to be like, this isn't my war. I ain't fighting your war. No, I, I do. I like that. And um, then finally it's like, okay, if if you give me a reason, I'll do this. But just don't tell me that, you know, we're here to kill Nazis because I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and then we do get the lovely moment of him running along and throwing the grenades into the into the air vents. Yeah, like towards the end is when he got interesting to me. Oh, he does. Yeah. The production of this film went so long that Jim Brown was in danger of missing training camp for the 1965 and 1966 season. So the NFL threatened to fine and suspend him if he didn't report immediately. Mm. This is before collective bargaining. Yeah. Brown decided he was going to hold a press conference and he promptly retired from the NFL. (laughs) He was in his prime. He was playing the best football he had ever played and he quit and said, I'm making this movie instead. Fuck you. I love that. That's an awesome move. That is so badass. Of his role, quote, I loved my part. I was one of the dozen, a quiet leader and my own man at a time when Hollywood wasn't giving these roles to blacks. I've never had more fun making a movie. The male cast was incredible. I worked with some of the strongest, craziest guys in the business. That's nice. And because he was such a big football fan, Robert Aldridge really beefed up Jefferson's role. Hmm. He loved football, so he's like, you know what, Jefferson? Let's put you in more of this movie. I appreciate that, but I just like he's just he's still stiff for me. Yeah, like, I don't know. I I really liked him, but I think maybe we could have used a little more from our next actor, John Cassavetes, as Victor Franco. Mm-hmm. This is before he became a legendary indie director and influential director. Mm-hmm. Before this. The biggest thing he did was The Killers, but after this, he had some pretty big roles. Rosemary's Baby, Husbands, Minnie and Moskowitz, Capone, Two Minute Warning, Opening Night, The Fury, Tempest, and Love Streams. And a lot of those movies are ones he directed. Okay. So, what do you think of John Cassavetes in this movie? He's very good because he's just he's just very antagonistic. He's not interested and he's just suspicious of everybody and he's just kind of a jackass. Yeah, I I think if you gave him a little bit more time, because really the central conflict of the movie is you've got Wadislaw and you got Franco, and it's these two different ideas. Wadislaw is a good soldier. Mm -hmm. His crime happened because he was trying to protect his guys, and he got pinned for the murder. But he's like, this jackass ran out in the middle of a field and was going to get us all killed. So I did what I had to do. Yeah. Whereas Franco is just a pure criminal. 
he's not going to be changed by this experience. And those are the balancing forces. And I think I think you're right. Jefferson's a great character, mm-hmm. but he's in too much of the movie stealing away from the central conflict of these two guys. Yeah. And the balance that that causes in the group. That's it for our main cast. Everybody else is going to be Arpons. Okay. We have Richard Jekyll as Sergeant Bowren. That is our MP guy. He was in the original 310 to Yuma. Oh, and he had a run on Baywatch, too. George Kennedy as Major Max Armbrister. We talked about him in Cool Hand Luke. Mm-hmm. He's back again. Trini Lopez as Pedro Jimenez. Interesting trivia about him. He is a singer from Dallas, raised in Little Mexico. He had 16 top 40 hits between 63 and 68. One of the interesting things is he was supposed to be one of the heroes of this film. Okay. He was supposed to be a big character. But Frank Sinatra, of all people, in the middle of the making of this movie, said he needed to quit and focus on his recording popularity. Mm-hmm. He had lost too much momentum because it took a long time to make this movie. And instead of lighting the dynamite at the chateau, which was what the plan was going to be for Jimenez, he walked off set and gets killed off screen getting his neck broken when his parachute fails. Mm, so he quit the movie. Yeah. He just quit. Like, I don't love that, but... yeah. I, if I, Frank Sinatra I, tells you... I get it. Maybe you do that. And hey, look, he kept on having a singing career, so good for him. It's just interesting stuff. We have Ralph Meeker as Captain Stuart Kinder. He was in Paths of Glory, a very early Kubrick film. Robert Ryan as Colonel Everett Dasher. Lots of war movies in the Wild Bunch and stuff like that. Telly Savalas is Archer Maggot. Gotta love that name. We've talked about him in On Her Majesty's Secret Service as Blofeld. Mm-hmm. Maybe the best Blofeld? Maybe? Maybe? Who could have been better for this role? Jack Palance. And Curly from uh, City Slickers. He actually turned it down because of the racism and violence. Good for him. He didn't want to play that role. Good for him. But I will say... Savalas does a good job of playing this role without ever being gratuitous about it. It is a hard line to walk for Maggot, but you don't ever like Maggot. No. And you're not supposed to. <laughs> That's okay. It's also his name is Maggot. Mm-hmm. Donald Sutherland as Vernon Pinkley. This is his film debut. No, but this is his first big movie role. Okay. He did a lot of B movies before this. He was actually a late casting decision who replaced an actor that claimed the role was beneath him. Cool. So they found Sutherland, and this actually saved his career. He was getting ready to quit because he wasn't getting any money, and this became his biggest payday. That's good. So, like, this propelled him into all the stuff he did after. Cool. We have Clint Walker as Samson Posey, our big beefy dude. It's actually in the Ten Commandments of all things. We have Al Mancini as Tassos Bravos. He was also in Miller's Crossing and Falling Down. George Rubichek as Private Gardner. He was in You Only Live Twice, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Star Wars A New Hope. I think he's like a side character in all of these movies, including this one. So, you know. Mm. Willoughby Gray as a German officer. We've talked about him before. He was in A View to a Kill, and he is the king from Princess Bride. Oh, yeah. John Hollis is a German porter at the Chateau. He was Lando's aide in Empire Strikes Back and Blofeld in For Your Eyes Only. We only see the back of his head in that. Hildegard Kneff, a famous German stage and screen actress, is in the German Chateau. Okay. 
Dick Miller is an MP at The Hanging. He's a legendary B-movie actor who would later be in The Terminator and The Burbs. And finally, Terry Richards as Staff Sergeant McIntosh Blake. This guy is a longtime stuntman who did tons of work on Bond, worked on Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. He was the guy who was the swordsman in the town square Mm -hmm. in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. Now, bad that it's brownface, but notable as an Arpon. Interesting. Trivia. Trivia? The scene where the dozen pretends to inspect the troops was written for Samson Posey, but Clint Walker was not comfortable doing that as a former merchant marine. So Aldrich said, Sutherland, you do it. (laughs) That moment Mm -hmm. alone got Sutherland the role in MASH. In 1970. Oh, okay. And it's brilliant. Well, that's really good. God, when he stares that soldier down. Where are you from, son? Madison City, Missouri, sir. Never heard of it. (laughs) (sighs) The Chateau set was so well constructed that 70 tons of explosives would have been needed to get that actual effect had it not been a model. Oh, wow. They went full out. They rebuilt sections of it from cork and plastic Mm. so they could do the destruction sequences. It's one of the largest sets ever built for a movie. It was 240 feet across and 50 feet high. And Gardner surrounded it with 5,400 square yards of heather, 400 ferns, 450 shrubs, 30 spruce trees, and six full-grown weeping willows. Then James Cameron came along and said, fuck you, I'm building a boat. I mean, if you're going to center I, your I, movie around I, that. It, you need, the set piece needs to pay off. And it did. You Just feel, like it did at Titanic. You're like, you feel like you're in the middle of upper crust Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. The cast had way too good of a time in England, hanging out and swinging London while Marvin occasionally just rode off on his motorcycle. No no explanation. Clint Walker went to Buckingham Palace and marveled at the immobile guards. And as he walked away, he was famous there for a role in a movie called Cheyenne. Mm -hmm. A guard, out of the side of his mouth, asked him for an autograph. (laughs) That's amazing. Didn't step out, but was like, hey, can I get an autograph from you, mate? If you are ever in London and you have an opportunity to watch The Changing of the Guard, you should, because it's actually pretty cool to watch. Most of the filming was done in England or outside at MGM British Studios. Because of his ridiculous amount of downtime while filming Casino Royale, Woody Allen frequently joined Marvin Bronson and Savalas to play poker. We talked about he did nothing for months. He he just lived there forever. (laughs) Ugh. was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Oh, my God. And then Dr. Doolittle came along. But I just, I love the fact that he was like, well, Dirty Dozen's over there. I guess I'll go hang out there. I'm going to hang out with my friends. The opening of Reisman walking down the line, originally, in the original prints, gives their total crimes in prison terms. Mm -hmm. In every subsequent cut, the gaps in the audio are noticeable by them just doing the prison terms. So he's walking down the line. We have this long stretch where nothing's said. But in the original movie, you hear that. And that is so key. I am so mad that they've cut that out. Hmm. We need to hear that. Yeah, that would have been good. I'm like, Maggot probably raped and killed a woman. We need to know that. Because it's such a huge thing for the movie. Like, every joke, every snide remark gets 
so much more deep and meaningful when you know what these guys did. Yeah. And it's not in any of the newer prints of this movie. Probably because it would constitute a full art rating for any home video release. Yeah, I I also want to be like, this movie is hard and we we want you to actually like, if we know too much about like their heinous crimes, it's going to make you not want to watch the movie. Yeah, it's it's a balancing act for sure. I just, I feel like that's part of the, the problem. Mm-hmm. It is such a huge point of context that again, you need to be uncomfortable thinking these guys are kind of funny or slapsticky. There needs to be that tension there. Mm-hmm. The training segment of the story was actually filmed over two months, and the cast did learn full judo and commando techniques while on set. Cool. And this is one of the first Hollywood movies showing American soldiers deliberately committing war crimes. Okay. The film was very controversial for depicting allied soldiers at times is no better than the Nazis. Hmm. Aldrich was actually told that if he dropped the scene with Jefferson dropping the grenades in the bomb shelter, he'd be up for best director for the Oscars. And he considered it because it did seem a bit cruel. I mean, it is it is haunting. You are looking at people grasping at an air grate to get grenades out. <laughs> but he left it in because he wanted to keep with the theme of war is hell. Yeah, that's, I, I do like that. I mean, that whole sequence is dark. And haunting, and it's not pretty, and that's important. Hmm. Like, it needs to be shown, (laughs) because not every one of these stories is just about heroism. Sometimes it's about, if you want to accomplish the job, it means you're going to have to be really fucking nasty. Yeah. Awards. This movie was nominated for four Academy Awards. Actor in a supporting role for John Cassavetes. Yeah. Film editing for Michael Luciano. Sound and sound effects. Okay. Not maybe the most major movie of this year, but a touchstone of this year for sure. And as always, we will not be revealing any of the winners in these categories until we get to our full 1968 Oscars coverage later on. All right. So on to ratings. Okay. How many red and blue armbands with the red armbands, because they're the first ones being half points, are you going to give this movie? Your movie is covered. I know. Man, I still really dig this movie. Mm -hmm. I think it is fun, but it has lost a lot of the potency it had when it first came out. In reading the trivia, I enjoy the little bit of context, but it's the Kubrick rule. I can't factor that into my decision. I'm going to go three and a half, three and a half armbands. Like it's a, I think it's a really solid war movie that is a touchstone for a lot of the anti-hero war movies we've seen today. It's just, it's lost a little bit of the punch it used to pat. Mm-hmm. What about you? I'm going to go with a three. Mm-hmm. It's a little slow and it needs more, it needs better dialogue and it needs to find a little bit better balance between like, how hard are these guys? Yeah. And then like, you maybe need a little bit more like training hijinks, training montaginess of those dudes bonding over this really like fucked up situation. All right, so what are we watching next week? Next week, we are probably going with our most intense dark movie of the series, and that's saying something. Mm-hmm. We're going to be watching In Cold Blood. Yeah, okay. I am very interested for this movie, especially after seeing some of the trivia now mm-hmm. and seeing some of what's going on. I think this is going to be a really fascinating watch. 
This might be a sleeper for our best movie in the series. Okay. So. Interesting. And the birth of true crime as a genre. Yep. In many ways. I'm excited for that. Right. So until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 